0: welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I'm here today with Haven Pell, also known as the Pontificator, with a very useful and fun blog that he talks about his political musings. And we are here to discuss what is probably one of the biggest news stories in a long time, which is the election of Boris Johnson in the UK and everything having to do with what looks like is going to be the eventual happening of Brexit. Haven, what do we make of this? I mean, this is big news. The the numbers that came out in favor of Boris were particularly strong. And all this jibber jabber as it relates to Brexit, are they remaining? Are they staying? It looks like that's probably going to be resolved.
1: It certainly appears that it will. And I think, again, the over under on the betting odds was a 40 seat majority. And it turned out to be closer to 70. So I was listening to some people talk on the subject last night, and they were talking about the polling seeming to be generally accurate as to the percentage of votes that each side got. But how those votes get distributed is so complicated in England because of the way they run their elections. So it turned out the Tories appeared to use their votes more effectively
0: than Labour did. So one of the things that the US probably doesn't intuit very well with the parliamentary and prime minister system is the fact that you're not exactly voting for a president in each of these elections. You're voting for your local representatives who are then casting their lot with the different parties and then you can have a no confidence vote in the prime minister halfway down the pike. What dynamic there do you think helped push this along a little bit in favor of Boris?
1: The closest analogy in a way would be to imagine that you, if in the United States, that you voted for a congressman. We have 435 of them. England has less than one-fifth the population of us, and they have 650. So the constituencies are very small, and 15,000 votes could easily win a seat in parliament. And so that's what every voter is doing. He lives in a constituency, which we would call a congressional district, He is voting for a person who does quite a lot of door-to-door canvassing. Money is very limited. When those people have all been chosen, they get together and they choose a prime minister. And they, obviously, the party that has the most representatives is going to choose its leader as prime minister. So you know who the two leaders are, or there are more parties than just two. You know who they are in advance, but you're not actually voting for them. You're voting for the people who will vote for them.
0: So you have a real mix of retail politics and national politics, much more so in many ways than probably the U.S., where you can vote for your congressman because you like him or her, but you can vote for somebody else for president because your leanings run a little bit differently.
1: That's a really good point. The idea of splitting your ticket, as many well-informed voters do in the United States, that isn't a choice. Once you voted for your congressman or your MP, your member of parliament, that person will then make a decision as to whom to vote for, for PM.
0: For those of us who sort of follow UK politics at best as a hobby, everything has been sort of split up into two parties with a bunch of ancillary parties that do have a lot of influence, but the two major ones are the Tories and Labour. And maybe it makes sense before we tackle the big issue, Brexit, but how do the Tories and labor lean?
1: Well, that's very very complicated because for a time there were the sort of internationalist Tories who might have been viewed at one time to be somewhat comparable to what are sometimes referred to as moderate Republicans, Rockefeller Republicans would have seemed like the dominant Tory party group, the people you imagine being extremely well-dressed, being in their lovely clubs, having important roles in business and the law, and the sort of business leadership was what that group of Tories was. Now, it has changed to some degree because that group of people might well have been described as pro-Europe because it was a lot of free trade, it was doing a lot that was good for their sort of traditional Republican-ish issues, but then the EU became more intrusive. And rather than just sort of limit their mandate to, okay, let's make sure that we're trading goods and services and we're putting as little friction on it as possible, which I think many people agree with, they began to say, this is how you have to do everything. And that began to chafe, and it was politically exploitable. So the Tories were to some degree split on Brexit, but there was a group that identified very much as we would identify sort of Tea Party issues, that there were the left behinds who exist in the north of England as they do in parts of the United States, felt underrepresented, felt exploited, felt that all the jobs were going away and that their lot was pretty bad, and they were inclined to favor getting out of the EU and returning to an older sort of what we think of as 50s America type of thing in England. And so basically, the Tory party purged a number of remainers, people who would have remained in the EU. And when they were assigning people to run in different constituencies. And you can do that. You can say, Fraser, you've been a really loyal member of the party. We're gonna give you a seat to run on that you can't lose. It's obvious that you're gonna win. And so if you're a favored person, you get an easy seat to run from. If you're disfavored, you could be precluded from running at all, or you don't get the label, you don't get the imprimatur of the Tories, or you get put into a seat in which you could easily be beaten. In any event, the Tories purged their team and made sure that it was very pro-Brexit. Labor never sort of revealed its hand. Labor's leader is a guy called Jeremy Corbyn, who the closest analogy, and this isn't really entirely fair, the closest analogy is Bernie Sanders. And Jeremy Corbyn is resolutely a person who opposes everything that is the British Empire, that has to do with business. He really is a socialist, and it's never far enough left for him. And that was, frankly, more scary than the prospect of trying to break ties with the European Union. And he got hammered. There were seats that have been Labour since 1922, that became conservative, particularly in the north and middle part of England. So I guess
0: one of the big questions is is that if this guy's so radical and so, so far left or maybe so unelectable, how did labor allow him to become the face of the party and therefore allow the, in many ways, the plane to go into the mountain? I'm
1: not sure that anybody has come up with a great answer to that question. I think it's an absolutely splendid question, but I don't have an answer to how the answer is the how could you be so stupid? It is nearly any more moderate face of labor would have done better. I mean, this was a historic beatdown. And they're talking about a period of self-reflection and uh, what went wrong. But really, the predominating view is that what went wrong was Jeremy Corbyn was an awful leader. And he, as far as I'm concerned, can't be gone fast enough.
0: So we've sort of done a little canvassing with the parties and how they're set up. Now the the, the big sort of criteria at this point is the subject of Brexit itself, which seems to have transcends the parties in many ways and, and has become the defining issue for the British voter. And it's something where they've, they've made a variety of decisions, starting back in, I guess it was 2016, with the decision to leave. Or I guess it was even earlier than that. And they keep trying to figure out how not to leave. And now they've decided, you know what, it's time to go, essentially by voting for Johnson. Maybe take us through a little bit about how that thought process went.
1: Well, not everyone agreed. The vote uh, in the referendum was different from the way they elect members of parliament that was a straight up vote where the voters of england or the voters of the uk said do we want to stay or do we want to leave and you just count up the votes and do we want to leave one it got more by a few percentage points and so that was viewed and and described as the will of the people the side that that lost that vote of course said, well, there was a huge amount of lying in the campaign, and if people had told the truth, then the vote would have gone differently, and it was demagogued, and all the sorts of things that people who don't win elections say, and maybe to some degree true. But it wasn't universal across the various components of the United Kingdom. Scotland, for example, has no interest in leaving at all. Scotland which had a huge success in the recent election by adding a lot of Scottish national members of parliament, they are now saying that they themselves don't want to leave. And maybe what they would do would be to leave the United Kingdom and stay in the EU. That is absolutely fraught with at least as many kinds of difficulties as are going to be fraught in the departure negotiations with the European Union. And how do you decide if Scotland says we don't want to be part of the United Kingdom anymore, then you have to put a border at Hadrian's Wall. And then what share of the debt does Scotland inherit? The British nuclear submarine bases are in Scotland and they don't want them and moving nuclear submarine base and the infrastructure from Scotland to somewhere else is a time-consuming process. I mean, there's a lot to negotiate if that were to occur, but Scotland is definitely a remain part of the British Isles. In Northern Ireland, they have the Democratic Unionist Party, which prefers to be allied with what we may think of as England. And then there's Sinn Féin, which is the Catholic Party That would prefer to be aligned with the rest of Ireland. And so there have been 100 years of difficulty between Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, England. And so that is another real can of worms. If those two say, well, we want to exit from England. All of that will be going on in the coming years because this is very much a multi-year process to extract themselves.
0: One of the things that seems to have popped up as being one of the major impacts of the current British election is the fact that Boris Johnson appears to have about five years of runway to be able to accomplish a lot of what he wants to do. And let's assume the major agenda is Brexit and that is... sort of tidal wave of support in a relative sense, gives him the leeway to do that. Whereas the previous way that the votes broke down was such that there was too many factions, too many alliances that had to be struck. That appears to be a little bit different now and, and in place for five years. How do you view that?
1: True. And that's a change in British politics. The Fixed Term Parliaments Act is of recent origin. It used to be that a majority government, especially when there were two parties, if one of the parties had the majority, they could govern as long as their party still had confidence in them. So there would be the idea of a vote of no confidence. And then the government would fall and you'd have an election. That meant that you had sort of lost your mandate from your own team and the opponents would always vote no confidence, but if enough of your own voted that way, then you would lose your majority, then you would call an election, and six weeks later, there'd be an election. They're now up to nine parties, although some of them sort of are like mayflies. They arrive. the Brexit party arrived only for this issue and it sort of is gonna dissipate into something else. And so with that, they created this Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, which sort of nods to the idea of votes of no confidence, but makes them more rare and more difficult to achieve, and says, putatively, there's going to be a five-year term. And so in December, five years from now, there will come up to be another election. So yes, he has a lot of runway, and he has a big majority, and he has a group of people who were pre-selected for loyalty and so he really only has the issue of what are called by-elections where somebody dies or is disgraced and has to resign or whatever and then they have an election to fill that seat but there aren't enough by-elections per year to make a dent in
0: the majority that boris johnson has That's interesting. So if we're to sort of put on our amateur political consultants hats and just try to predict the future a little bit here, as far as where you would sort of I guess, try to (laughs) figure out where to put your tent stake. It seems to me a lot of the principles that we're talking about here are federalist in nature, meaning it's going from sort of a natural centralized position whereby people can identify sort of the PM, whether it's John Major or Tony Blair or Theresa May or now Boris Johnson to something that's much more local. Where do you come out on that? Are there any themes that really push forward? It seems to me that there is a question that that is not, it's not
1: askable. I know it's not askable because I asked it once to a person who was very much an international figure and he tore my head off. But the question that I find to be interesting, unasked and unanswered is, is there ever a conversation in the quietest and highest levels of the European Union In which they say to themselves, what might we have done to keep this off the ballot in England? What should we have been doing for the last 10 years to avoid making them mad enough to have a referendum? And it seems to me that the answer to that was be less intrusive. Similarly, England, which dominates the United Kingdom, is going to find itself on exactly the other side of the issue from Brexit, because they're going to have to sit down with Scotland and say, the Scots have already spoken about having a referendum on independence, and Boris Johnson's position is, no, you can't. And he has the right to say that. Is that really the best position to be in? Because all it's going to do is leave the pent-up desire for independence, and you'll create a feeling, as we have in this country, of an anti-Washington feeling. It will be an anti-Whitehall feeling. People will exploit that politically. My inclination would be, if I were Boris Johnson, I would talk to the leader of the Scottish National Party, and I would say, what are the things that you would like to be deciding and doing for yourselves in Scotland? And are you willing to pay the taxes to support those things? And they could talk about Different way of doing national health. They could talk about a different way of doing any number of things that they might prefer to do differently, much as we would maybe in the South, people prefer to do things one way, and in New England, they prefer to do things another way. And if you let them do it, but also say, look, if you choose to have a more generous system, it's up to you to pay for it. And there are real issues, one of which is if Scotland wants out, they're going to have to come up with a new currency. The British pound isn't going to do it for them. And it seems fair-minded to say that if a part of a country wants out, there ought to be a formula for determining how much of the national debt belongs to the part that's leaving. That doesn't seem an outrageous idea. You shouldn't be able to leave and stick the former country with the debt that was incurred for you. And then, You can imagine the discussions about
0: that i I look at scotland and it's a wonderful country but do they have the industry to be able to support themselves is there enough money is there enough economy to function and i don't see it
1: no there isn't and in a way therein is the problem is if you say to scotland okay that's being independent well i mean we obviously can understand that we want to be independent from the eu And so we can't very well say that you shouldn't want to be independent of us. It's pretty much the same theme. So let's discuss how we would do that. And it's a pretty big burden. It's a very big challenge to say we need a new currency. We need to absorb our share of the debt. We need to take responsibility for infrastructure, for various different things that go on. We need to recreate as Scottish law Lots of things that may have existed as UK law, but once we become a separate country, we have to make those things, we have to codify those things and decide them.
0: I kind of analogize that to sort of upstate New York, let's say everything above Westchester County seceding from New York as a state and really separating from New York City. And you've got sort of a whole bunch of different constituencies that far north that feel like they have something interesting from a self-determination perspective and may indeed be able to, but can they fund it? And New York City ultimately funds a lot of what makes New York State work. I don't know. That's my simple analogy, and it's something where I think it seems like a good idea, but to untie all of that could create massive problems for both sides.
1: I don't know when we get to peak debt. But theoretically, there should be a peak debt at some point. And I don't know where it is. But when that occurs, people are going to start to think of taxpayers as a resource. And if you have people who are able to pay lots of taxes, then that's going to make whatever your geography is, whatever the circle you choose to put around yourselves, much easier to deal with. So suddenly people are gonna have to cater to taxpayers and they're gonna have to say, we would like you to be here with us so that you can support the kinds of programs that we wanna do. And because there is mobility, they have to say, we can't have tax rates or policies or things that are gonna drive you off or you could leave. And the geography can't go anywhere, it's fixed. But the people can. And if the people can move, theoretically, they could choose to say, well, this is a nicer place for me to live. And that's where I'm going to go live. And that's where my taxes will go. And that will be a tough knot for the jurisdictions that are less friendly to that. And big taxpayers, that's going to be a big deal. I'm
0: asking a question to sort of circle the square here about analogizing what we're seeing in England and whether we can take any lessons or predictive mood points here. But just to go back, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I get in my day job three calls a week from people who are looking to move from the tri-state area to somewhere that's warmer and maybe more retirement friendly, sometimes even more sort of business friendly. In the U.S., you have that option in many ways. Sure much less so in England and I guess that may be sort of the source of frustration but to get back to it so we've we've got a bunch of different mood points I'd say you've got sort of a national mood that has finally sort of come together on Brexit you've got a decision that's been made as it relates to Tory versus labor However people came to that, what do we look at if we're good pundits here, we're trying to figure out how this affects us. (laughs) And is there something we can take from the mood over in England and bring it back to try to predict what we're looking at here in the U.S.? As we're careening toward a 2020 election, we've got Trump and we've got a lot of different data points around him. He seems to have good economic data. He's got a major set of daftness as it relates to his communication strategy. He's communication by Twitter. He's disintermediated the media to a large extent. But it seems like he's changed the paradigm on that somewhat, even if what he says can be crazy and offensive to many people. You've got that component. And then on the other side, we've got the Democrats where there is no one rising to the top. And you've got Joe Biden, who comes with a lot of different baggage and is not sort of presenting a powerful figure right now who continues to maintain his lead. Where do we square that?
1: I think it's interesting. And I I know that one flaw in my own thinking, and it's a frequent flaw, and I think it's a flaw that many people have, is that I have a tendency to confuse what I think with what I hope. So my hope is that the lesson drawn from the UK general election is too radical is bad, too intrusive is bad. That would be my starting point. Of what I would hope would happen in any political situation. But whether that is worth thinking rather than hoping, or expecting or predicting rather than hoping, I'm not sure. My sense is that people are using the question of what lesson do we learn from England mostly to support a pre existing agenda on their part. And I think that people are probably overdrawing. Conclusions from England that they think will apply in the United States. And the one that jumps to mind fastest is that Jeremy Corbyn is sort of not completely dissimilar from Bernie Sanders and maybe by analogy to Elizabeth Warren. And so this is a rejection of the hyper radical. I don't know whether it's true or not, and whether you can say, oh, well, that's going to translate into this country or not. I wouldn't mind terribly if it did, but it seems an obvious way to write a Sunday column after a Thursday election and whether it's really going to survive further scrutiny is unclear to me.
0: I sort of look at the I'm so tied into the economics and stock market and how are things playing out on that front. And I'm based in New York City, which means I'm already in a major media bubble as it is and don't get out enough to see what's happening in the countryside. But it feels to me like the country is, is shifting a little bit as it relates to either an acceptance of the way Trump does business or a frustration with the way that people are receiving their information and that the decisions have already been made. Do you get a sense of that?
1: Oh, yeah. There was something that I saw this morning that was talking about the decreasing interaction with stories about the impeachment. And This seems essentially sort of measurable because you can say how many people tweet a particular story, how many people click on it. There are actual facts and figures about stories. And stories about the impeachment have trended downward since the beginning of it. And it may be that you were asking earlier, or we were discussing earlier, the question of lessons to be drawn from England to the United States. And you know, maybe one lesson to be drawn is that there are certain issues that get so wrung out by the whatever the political sides may be, and they get so hammered upon that people just finally say, they throw up their hands and say, I can't stand this anymore. And the analogy of they've been, as they say in England, banging on about Brexit for three and a half years, and people just wanna shoot themselves in the head They can't stand it anymore. They've heard the same thing over and over and over again. Well, we've been banging on about Trump for about three and a half years, and it is possible that people are sort of losing interest in that topic. And they say, look, maybe I should ignore the outrageous things that he does, because there sure are a lot of people working. And we seem to be resolving trade problems with China, at least in recent weeks, recent days, maybe. Stock market's good. My life is good if I just ignore politics. And it could be that the political strategists have overplayed their hand. And that wouldn't be a
0: bad thing either. No, and I think we're going to look back 10, 15, 20 years from now. And the whole way Trump does business, I think, has changed politics in the United States, I don't know if forever is the right word, but fundamentally, I mean, it's almost like the Nixon-Kennedy debate on TV. I would equate Trump's use of Twitter as that kind of seismic event politically. And I find it, at one hand, entertaining to watch all the hand-wringing and, at other times, frustrating because we don't get to any sort of level of discussion over actual policy. I don't know. I think 2020, I mean, we can see it now as the Democrats try to sort themselves out in the pre-primary process that there isn't much discussion other than we're not Trump. And I mean, the numbers are probably going to be very close. And but I feel like they've got to bring a better case to the people.
1: I think it's been pretty widely reported that Nancy Pelosi began as being pretty anxious about the whole impeachment process and whether there was a cartoon that shows people chopping down a tree. And the Democratic donkey is saying, it's not going to fall on us, is it? And there's Trump on one side and the Democrats on the other. And the tree is partially cut down and it has a label that says impeachment. And the donkey is saying, that's not going to fall on us, is it? And I think that that gives you a sense of the anxiety about misplaying a political hand. Now, maybe it isn't misplaying the hand. Maybe it will be successful. Maybe it is deserved. Maybe all of those things are true. But in the end, my guess is the Democrats would like to win the election. And will this help them or hurt them? It's way beyond what I would know. But I think that the case is increasingly being made
0: that maybe it isn't going to help them. I think we found the topic for our next podcast. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> well, we're running short on time anyway. Haven, thank you very much. I think we've covered a lot, and certainly my understanding of Brexit and UK politics is it's a lot further along than it was before. Thanks for helping us bring this up.
1: Well, it's always fun to chat, and I look forward to these very much, and on to the next one.
0: Terrific. Terrific. You've been listening to the Wealth Actually podcast. This is Fraser Rice and I've been speaking with Haven Pell and we've been trying to decipher Brexit and its impact on UK politics. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time
1: on Wealth Actually.